Due to the graphic nature of this killer's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. On a cold fall day in 1720, two pirates stood trial in Jamaica. Their prognosis wasn't good. They were the last two pirates on their captured vessel to stand trial and had already watched all their sloopmates hang. Sure enough, the judge showed these last two pirates no mercy. He handed down a guilty verdict and a death sentence. He asked if the two pirates had anything to say in their own defense. It's pretty safe to say he got a lot more than he was expecting. When the two young pirates revealed that they were both women and that they were both pregnant. These two masters of disguise, or mistresses, as the case may be, were our very own Anne Bonnie and her faithful best friend and partner, Mary Reed. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture any women? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every week, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Claire. And I'm Vanessa. Today, we're going to continue our deep dive into the life of notorious female pirate Anne Bonny. Anne, her lover Calico Jack Rackham, and her best friend and confidant, Mary Reed, terrorized the Caribbean together from 1718 to 1720, stealing treasure from other ships. In our last episode, we talked about Anne's childhood spent pretending to be a boy to keep her parents' affair a secret, her rebellion against her father and Charlestown society, her romance and partnership with pirate Calico Jack Rackham, and Rackham's abandonment of Anne during her pregnancy. And today, we'll be covering the story of Anne's new partner in crime, Mary Reed, and their similarities, their time together aboard the William, and their eventual capture. We'd like to ask a quick favor. Would you leave a five-star review of Female Criminals on your favorite podcast directory? It seems so simple, but it really helps us out. And don't forget to subscribe while you're there, because a new episode comes out every Wednesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast, and on Twitter at Parcast Network. Anne Bonny, feared pirate of the high seas and lover of the notorious Calico Jack Rackham, took some time off from her seafaring life sometime around 1719. During this time, Calico Jack took her ashore to a friend's house in Cuba to deliver their first child. Less than a year after disembarking, Anne returned without her child to the William, the sloop she called home. She, Calico Jack, and their shipmates set off on a three-month stretch of piracy that would prove to be their most prosperous yet. Accounts vary as to how Anne Bonny and Mary Reed met, but award-winning historian Karen Abbott of the Smithsonian estimates that it was during this time. 
Anne, now 19 or 20 years old, came back aboard the William in 1719. Soon after, Calico Jack and the crew raided a Dutch merchant ship and took its crew captive. Among them was a spirited, strong young man who captured Anne Bonny's attention. Legend has it that she befriended the young man and helped recruit him to join Calico Jack's crew. She became so enamored of him that she tried to seduce him, at which point the young pirate disrobed enough to reveal the feminine body beneath it. Anne Bonny had enjoyed the freedom to be fluid in how she presented her gender. Besides for when the William engaged with other ships and Anne dressed as a man to fight, she lived openly as a woman. Everyone on board knew she was Calico Jack's lover. Mary, however, was masquerading as a man full-time on her Dutch merchant ship. But she was used to this, as she had spent most of her life living as a man. Mary Reed was born in Devon County, England, sometime in the late 17th century. Varying sources place her birth anywhere between 1685 and 1698. But we have reason to believe it was on the later end of that spectrum, as most sources portray Mary and Anne as very close in age. Mary's mother was from lower-class origins, and she married a sea captain from a wealthy family. Soon after Mary's older brother was born, her father deserted his family before dying at sea. We don't know why he left, but it's possible that his family didn't approve of the match. It's also possible that their backgrounds were too different for Mary's mother and the captain to relate to one another for very long. After the captain's death, his wealthy mother gave Mary's mother and brother an allowance that would allow them to continue living as they had. What the captain's mother didn't know at the time, however, was that Mary's mother was already pregnant with another child, and this one was out of wedlock. Mary was the product of an affair that happened after the captain had abandoned the family. This left her mother in quite a predicament because she depended on the weekly allowance from her mother-in-law for survival. An allowance that she suspected would dry up very quickly if her mother-in-law found out she bore another man's child. Mary's mother went to live with friends in the country for several months under the pretense of needing time to grieve. What she really wanted was time to figure out how to cover her tracks. Within the first two years of Mary's life, her older brother passed away. Through her understandable devastation, Mary's mother saw an opportunity. She dressed Mary up as a little boy and finally returned to Devon County, pretending that Mary was actually her dead older brother. And from the tender age of two years old, maybe even younger, Mary played along. Before we get into the psychology here, we just want to give a brief heads up. Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she's done a lot of research for this show. Recent studies of the Bacha Posh in Afghanistan suggest blurring children's lines of gender identity in this way has more lasting psychological impact than one might expect, especially in rigidly patriarchal cultures. In Afghanistan, some families who have only daughters will pass one of their daughters off as a son. These children are called bacha posh. 
But the catch is, once the bacha posh hit puberty, they're expected to revert back to living as women. Psychologist Diane Aronsaft sums up the experience of bacha posh as, quote, Some daughters do not want to go back to living as a girl. Others just don't know how to be a female after several years of living as a male. And still others express discomfort about the masquerade, end quote. It's possible that Mary could identify with any or all of these sentiments. We just don't know. But we know that Mary's mother pretended that Mary was her son for similar reasons that the parents of the Bacha Poche did, for social acceptance. As long as the captain's mother thought she still had a grandson to take care of, Mary and her mother still got their weekly allowance. And as a single mother from a working class background with a limited skill set and no resources to spare for childcare, Mary's mother depended on that allowance to survive. Despite the gulf of lies that stretched between them, Mary developed an amicable relationship with her grandmother while she was growing up. Mary's grandmother died when she was 13 years old, sometime around 1708. Mary and her mother thought that their charade could finally come to an end, hoping to inherit something from the captain's mother that could help them both live more easily. Unfortunately, that wasn't the case. Some sources claim that the captain's mother figured out Mary's ruse and cut Mary and her mother off financially before her death. Others claim that Mary's grandmother was well off, but not actually wealthy, and did not leave much of an inheritance when she died. Whatever the case, when Mary's grandmother died, the weekly allowance she gave to Mary's mother died with her. It didn't take long for the family to experience the anxiety that comes with financial insecurity yet again. Luckily, Mary was now old enough to work, which meant that she could help contribute to the household and take care of her mother. The two women set to work finding an appropriate job for Mary. But the jobs available for young women at the time didn't pay well enough for them to tempt Mary and her mother. Soon, they realized that Mary could make much more money as a footboy than working in someone's estate as a maid. A footboy usually refers to a male servant who runs alongside his master or mistress's coach to make sure it stays upright during transit and makes sure his employer can make a smooth, clean landing. Basically, a footboy was like an old-fashioned valet. They were considered a luxury to have, since they were paid so much more than female servants. Obviously, that held some appeal for Mary and her mother. And Mary had a lifetime of expertise when it came to dressing like a boy. She'd fooled her own grandmother for about a decade after all. She got the job and helped support her mother for a time. But the job wasn't an interesting one and Mary grew tired of it after a time. So around 1709 or 1710, when Mary was around 14 or 15, she left home and joined up with the British Navy as a powder monkey, a boy who hauled gunpowder from the ship's hull to its cannons. Mary's maritime adventures took her to Flanders, which today is a largely Dutch-speaking part of northern Belgium. While in Flanders, Mary continued to dress as a man and joined up with the Flemish army. She served in both infantry and cavalry, 
and met the man who would change her life forever. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. And now, back to female criminals. While Mary Reed was in the Flemish army, she fell in love with her bunkmate, a Flemish soldier whose surname was Reed. Mary finally worked up the nerve to reveal her true gender to her beloved. To her great joy, he reciprocated her affections. The two married sometime around 1714, when Mary was around 17 or 18 years old, and Mary officially became Mary Reed. They moved to the Netherlands, where her husband managed to save up and buy an inn. They named it the Inn of the Three Horseshoes, and Mary prepared to settle down for a quiet, honest life. For the first time, Mary could live openly as a woman. As an innkeeper's wife, she was financially stable for the first time since she and her mother were dependent on her grandmother's weekly allowance. Sendel Melanathan, a Harvard economist, and Eldar Shafir, a psychologist at Princeton, published a groundbreaking study in 2013 that linked poverty to an adverse effect on cognitive function. Mullenathan and Shafir's study proved that when a person living in poverty has to think about how they'll afford unexpected expenses, they find it much more difficult to focus on other tasks. It can take time for the brain to unlearn those kinds of thought patterns. It's highly probable that Mary's brain never fully came out of survival mode, something that, sadly, might have worked to her benefit just a few years later. But for now, in 1714, Mary settled down with a man who loved her and who she loved in return. And she finally didn't have to pretend anymore to be someone she wasn't. That all changed in three short years when her husband died a sudden early death around 1717. Reed's name became the part of him she carried with her the longest. Mary, only about 21 years old at this time, was unable to keep the inn of the three horseshoes open by herself. Bereaved and once again scrambling for financial stability, Mary set off looking for work. She did so dressed as a man, as she had done her whole life. It's important to note here the motivations that made Mary Reed dress in men's clothing and how they were different from Anne's. Although they both dressed as boys when they were children, Anne's disguise in New Paradise seems to have been mostly motivated by a lust for adventure, rebellion, and danger. She wanted autonomy over her own life, including her choice of romantic partner and she felt that dressing as a man would be the best way to help her accomplish that. Mary's disguise, on the other hand, was born out of financial necessity, just as it had been for her entire life. She knew that the best way for her to earn money at a reasonable rate was by dressing as a man. Living and dressing as a woman limited her options to lower-paying jobs and made her, quite literally, worth less. That was a gendered distinction she had known all her life. It's also possible that Mary may also have felt more comfortable living or socializing as a man at this point. There were only three years or so in her life, up to 1717, where she had lived openly as a woman. And those had been the only years where she was not solely responsible for her own and her family's well-being. 
The differences between Anne and Mary's reasons for dressing as men could come down to another commonality. They both had low-class mothers attached to high-class fathers or father figures, and they both had one parent or parental figure die early on. But Anne's living parent was her wealthy father, which allowed her a degree of financial security that Mary never had while growing up. Anne was freer to experiment with her identity as an adult, with only a father and a husband trying to hold her back from doing what she wanted, while Mary just had to do what was going to keep her alive. Which makes it no surprise that Mary turned to dressing and living as a man again at this point in her life. Sometime around 1717, after the death of her husband, 21-year-old Mary once again donned men's clothes and hit the high seas. Her first stop was the Dutch military, where she had served for three or four years before marrying her husband. But she found that there wasn't as much work as there had been three years earlier. The War of the Spanish Succession had ended in 1714, and the Dutch weren't involved in any other major conflicts at the time. This much peace was hard on a soldier's pocket, and Mary quickly found there was no room for mobility for her in the Dutch armed forces. So she set sail for the West Indies on a ship filled with former merchants and more than a few buccaneers in search of possible work as a privateer. Privateers were essentially independent maritime contractors authorized by whichever government is hiring them to engage in acts of war against rivals if necessary. Sometimes they were used as mercenaries, sometimes as bounty hunters. But unlike mercenaries, privateers didn't take upfront payment. Like bounty hunters, they had to deliver the goods before receiving any reward. It was good work for men with naval experience who found themselves unable to do much during peacetime. Mary checked most of those boxes, and the ones she wasn't able to, remember, they were looking for experienced men, she was able to fudge. According to General History of Pirates, which again is a highly speculative source, but one of the only texts about the life of Mary Reed we have to lean on, Mary's ship was captured by pirates just as it entered West Indian waters sometime in 1717. It's unclear whether Mary joined the crew of her own accord or whether she was forced to join them, but either way, she stayed with them a short time as a buccaneer. If you've ever been confused about the difference between a pirate and a buccaneer, you're not alone. That's probably because there really isn't much of one. Buccaneer was a term originally used to refer to a specific group of hunters of French descent who lived on the island of Hispaniola in the Caribbean. Today, Hispaniola is divided into two countries, French-speaking Haiti to the west and the Spanish-speaking Dominican Republic to the east. When the first Spanish settlers came onto the island around 1630, they drove the buccaneers out and onto the nearby island of Tortuga. These buccaneers took to the high seas and plundered Spanish ships in revenge. Slowly, the term became nearly synonymous with piracy. And with good reason. Pirates and buccaneers were remarkably similar, down to how they ran their ships and managed their crews. The structure of a buccaneer crew, like that of a pirate crew, was almost entirely democratic. 
the crew voted on who their captain would be, as well as the rest of the ship's hierarchy. They also voted on whether or not to attack a ship and split the plunder evenly. They even had elaborate insurance systems to account for any crew members who were injured. The biggest difference, really, was that the buccaneers were specifically anti-Spain. So when Mary's ship was captured in 1717, when she was coerced or forced into becoming a buccaneer, she was essentially dipping her toe into piracy. And it was actually pretty great, mostly due to the differences between buccaneer and pirate ship command structures and the command structures that existed within militaries. She was able to coexist with her shipmates as true equals, This was in direct contrast to her past experiences in the military, with its rigid hierarchical structure defined at least partially by class. But it wasn't easy living, and it wasn't fully legal living either. Mary had always been an honest worker who worked honest jobs. Buccaneering and piracy, however, were both considered criminal. In seafaring women, Historian David Cordingly claims that Mary was quoted as saying she always hated the life of a pirate and went into it only upon compulsion. Once again, we see here that poverty prevented Mary from feeling as though she had autonomy over her own life. Anne went into piracy because she wanted to. Mary did it because she felt she had to in order to survive. The year after Mary joined this buccaneer crew, in 1718, Governor Woods Rogers of the Bahamas issued his royal pardon to any pirate who willingly surrendered to the law. This caused the crew aboard Mary's ship to split up, as members of her crew couldn't agree unanimously on whether or not to accept the terms of the pardon. Remember, piracy was one of the more lucrative ways to make a living back then. With no wars going on, little military activity, and imports and exports controlled by a few very wealthy hands. But Mary, ever the opportunist, saw a chance to make a decent paycheck on shore. The pirates who accepted Governor Woods Rogers' pardon were welcome to live a peaceful life on shore in the Bahamas. And word spread that Woods Rogers would even hire them as privateers to protect merchant ships against mainly Spanish buccaneers who preyed on them. Former pirates and buccaneers flooded the West Indies, Jamaica, and the Bahamas, waiting for local governments to hire them as privateers to bring down the stubborn pirates still holding out. Mary's ship was among them. It's a little unclear what became of Mary over the next year or so. We're not sure if she stayed with some of her remaining crewmates and worked as a privateer alongside them, or if she joined up with a different ship. We're not positive if she accepted the governor's pardon willingly, or if she fell on the wrong side of the majority rule. Whatever the case, we know that Mary worked as a privateer for a very short time until sometime in 1719. That's when her ship was overtaken by Calico Jack and his crew. And that's when she met Anne Bonny, sparking a friendship that would change the dynamic on the William and both of their lives forever. When Anne Bonny and Mary Reed met sometime in late 1719, it was at a pivotal turning point in her life. As we mentioned in our previous episode, 
Anne had just given birth to a child and had rejoined the crew of the William after a prolonged separation. She was starting to see, for perhaps the first time, that even though she'd sacrificed everything to sail the high seas with the man she loved, Calico Jack mainly looked out for Calico Jack. And Mary had recently tragically lost her husband, but gained new autonomy as a male-passing privateer in the private haven of the Bahamas. Neither of them felt that they had a significant other to whom they could confide in. So after Mary revealed her secret to Anne, the two women developed a close camaraderie. Finally, they each had someone they could talk to. Apparently, nobody on the sloop, including Calico Jack, suspected Mary's true gender at any point in 1719. Historians have often been confused by the logistics of Mary passing as a man for so long, especially on close quarters like a ship where it would be hard for Mary to hide certain things from her shipmates. For example, she would likely have needed to hide the fact that she menstruated. However, according to the Smithsonian's Karen Abbott, from what we do know about life on the high seas in the 18th century, it's possible that Mary's diet was poor enough that it disrupted her cycle or stopped it altogether. And the demanding manual labor of pirate life could have likely contributed as well. Some female athletes and women in the military experience interrupted menstrual cycles when they train too hard. Regardless of the realities of how Mary kept her secret, we know that Anne was the only person on board the William who knew Mary's secret at all. They became friends so quickly and so completely that their relationship supposedly made Calico Jack first suspicious and then jealous. Anne and Mary became inseparable and, according to some sources, even became lovers. And together, Anne and Mary were ruthless. One account even used the word hellhounds to describe them. They worked the sloop as well as the rest of the men and were just as violent and vicious when plundering other ships, too. Some said even more so. Apparently, the two were so inseparable that when the pirates aboard the William raided another vessel, Anne and Mary would charge aboard together, sometimes way ahead of their fellow pirates. Regardless of whether or not their relationship became sexual at any point, it's interesting that Calico Jack felt threatened by Anne and Mary's closeness at this particular juncture in their lives. In our last episode, We talked about how Calico Jack had just dropped Anne off in Cuba to deliver their child, without staying by her side in labor, or even seeing if his son or daughter made it into the world successfully. There's little doubt this caused a shift in his relationship with Anne. In his book, Cupid's Arrow, Dr. Robert Sternberg breaks down what he calls the triangular theory of love. The basic principle of it is a successful relationship relies on a triangle of emotional components in order to survive. Intimacy, passion, and commitment. Anne and Jack had passion in spades. Passion had never been a concern for them, as they were both known to be flamboyant, hot-tempered people. Intimacy is pretty obvious, too, considering they had at least one child together that we know of. But if Sternberg's theory holds water, the commitment corner of Anne and Jack's triangle likely suffered as a result of Anne's time in Cuba. 
And so, when Anne returned aboard the William, perhaps her relationship with Mary, one that revolved around a shared commitment to Mary's secret, felt well-rounded in a way that Anne's relationship with Jack did not. It's miraculous and almost unbelievable that they even wound up on the same ship at the same time. But enough historical documents, including their trial documents, put them together on the William, so we know their legendary friendship was, indeed, a fact. And we also know that Calico Jack and the William were never more prosperous than when Anne and Mary were on board together. In the summer of 1720, they consistently plundered merchant and privateer ships along the Jamaican coastline. Their profitable summer stretched into fall. In September of 1720, when Anne was only about 20 or 21 years old, and Mary not much older, they raided a total of nine ships, seven fishing boats, and two other sloops just off the coast of Harbor Island. On board the William, however, dissonance simmered. Calico Jack had become so threatened by Anne and Mary's closeness that it made him even more volatile. He became convinced that Anne was in love with Mary, and by 1720, he threatened to slit Mary's throat to win Anne back. It was at this point, under duress, that the two revealed Mary's true gender, which may well have been what saved her life. It certainly seems to have helped assuage Calico Jack's jealousy in the short term. The news that Mary had recently taken up with another pirate aboard the ship may have also helped calm Calico Jack's rage. But Anne's relationship with Mary didn't necessarily have to be sexual for Anne to be getting something out of it that Calico Jack couldn't give her. Surely he was astute enough to know this, too. While personal drama raged on board the sloop, legal drama was brewing back on shore. On September 5, 1720, right after Calico Jack and his crew raided a mid-sized ship off the shores of Jamaica, Governor Woods Rogers placed a proclamation in the paper that was reprinted as far as the Boston Gazette. In it, he announced there was a bounty on the heads of the entire crew of the William. For all those aboard the little sloop were to be considered enemies to the crown of Great Britain, including the two female pirates aboard the ship, Anne Bonny and Mary Reed. We'll return to our story in just a moment. And now let's continue our story. In September of 1720, a bounty was placed on the crew of the William, and worse, it made it clear to the public that two women had been secretly operating as pirates. It's possible that Woods Rogers figured out Anne Bonny was one of the men who fled New Paradise that night with Calico Jack and his crew, but Mary had pretty rigorously defended her true identity up until this point, or so she thought. When the Gazette proclamation dropped, Mary had to face the uncomfortable truth that she either wasn't the master of disguise she thought she was, or word got out. A few weeks later, in late September or early October 1720, Anne and Mary led a pirate raid against another ship. They carried out all of the loot and held the ship's crew captive for two days before releasing them. 
There are several witness accounts that Anne Bonny and Mary Reed were among the most daring, vicious, and violent on the ship. They charged onto the waiting ship together, clad in men's clothing, with a gun in one hand and a machete in another. They did a lot to dispel the stereotype of women as being fragile, fearful, and passive, both in their crew and abroad as their story spread. By this point in autumn of 1720, Mary followed Anne's lead and lived openly as a woman during periods between raids. But as Anne and Mary became better fighters together, Anne and Calico Jack seemed to be drifting apart. By this point in 1720, according to what testimony we have, Anne and Mary were working and fighting alongside one another far more often than Anne and Jack. Calico Jack, it seemed, was coming somewhat undone. He spent more and more time drinking and brooding in the ship's hull as he tried to outsmart the veritable army of bounty hunters Governor Woods Rogers had sent after him. Indeed, the governor had sent several ships after the William, fully intending to bring its crew on shore for trial and, most likely, a death sentence. One night in November 1720, Privateer John Barnett surprised the William after Calico Jack and his crew had supposedly hosted a rum party off of the shores of Jamaica. Barnett was lucky. He happened upon the William when many of its crew had already passed out from all the rum. But Anne and Mary were still up, and they shouted to the crew to wake up and get moving. A few were able to push past their drunkenness and comply, including Calico Jack Rackham. According to the Smithsonian, Rackham fired his swivel gun at Barnett and his crew as the privateer's ship approached, perhaps hoping that would be sufficient enough to scare him off. The swivel gun, a small mounted cannon that could move quickly and fire hard, wouldn't be able to do damage to the other ship, but it could definitely hurt some of its crew. But Barnett and his crew weren't scared off. After his failed attempt to scare off the privateers, Rackham ordered his crew to surrender to Barnett's men. He requested a quarter, asking Barnett to spare their lives since they surrendered willingly. Two of Calico Jack's pirates, however, refused to fall in line. When John Barnett came aboard the William to capture Calico Jack and his crew that night in the fall of 1720, only two pirates stood aboard the deck ready to fight him, Anne Bonny and Mary Reed. The rest of the pirates aboard the William fled to the ship's hull and locked themselves down there for safety, leaving Anne and Mary to fight Barnett and his men on their own. One of the most legendary stories of the night was Mary Reed, gun in hand, yelling over her shoulder into the hull, quote, if there's a man among ye, ye'll come up and fight like the men ye pretend to be." End quote. When nobody came to her aid, Mary fired a shot over her shoulder and into the ship's hull, killing one of her fellow sloopmates in disgust. After an impressive standoff, especially given how outnumbered they were, Anne, Bonnie, and Mary Reed were finally forced to surrender. Barnett took all the members of the William prisoner alive. Except, of course, for the poor man in the hull who fell victim to Mary Reed's own punishing bullet. Barnett escorted them to their trial in Jamaica in November 1720. Pirate trials in 1720 were a quick and brutal business. 
Most of the men on trial were pirates who had ignored the governor's pardon and were therefore already considered treasonous. With very few exceptions, they were sentenced to death, which in those days meant the gallows, and for some, even included gibbeting. Gibbeting was the act of displaying a criminal's body publicly after he or she had been executed. This was an especially common practice for pirates, as Governor Woods Rogers believed that seeing pirates' bodies hanging in public places might discourage future offenders. In an era when piracy was still arguably the most lucrative and least morally reprehensible way to make a living at the time, Woods Rogers needed all the help he could get to convince folks it was not a sustainable career move. While we know that Governor Woods Rogers was aware of Mary and Anne's true identities at this point, we don't know exactly how their gender factored into their arrest and arraignment. The entire crew of the William was held in prison together until their trial dates in November of 1720. But for some reason, Anne and Mary got a separate trial date. In mid-November 1720, Calico Jack and all the men aboard the William were tried for piracy and convicted. They were all sentenced to hang. Calico Jack got the extra punishment of gibbeting. His body would be displayed on a cliffside along the coast. After Calico Jack's trial, he reportedly had one request and one request only to see his beloved Anne Bonnie before meeting his maker. After several requests, Anne finally obliged him. But it was hardly the deathbed reunion Jack had dreamed of. Reportedly, when Anne came to visit Calico Jack, her last words to him were something along the lines of, quote, If ye'd fought like a man, ye need not hang like a dog. End quote. Calico Jack Rackham was indeed hanged in Spanish Town, Jamaica. His body was gibbeted on the cliffside of an inlet along the coast that, to this day, is known as Rackham's K. Then, with all their friends and crewmates dead, it was finally Anne and Mary's turn. On November 28, 1720, Anne Bonney and Mary Reed stood trial for piracy at the Admiralty Court in St. Jago de la Vega, Jamaica. Both pleaded not guilty to all charges. We're fortunate in that several transcripts from their trials survived. Anne and Mary's trials seemed mostly to consist of testimonies from others aboard the sloop with them, everyone from passengers to captives. A woman named Dorothy Spenlow, whose canoe had been robbed and seized by the pirates in one of their raids, was one of the key witnesses against Anne and Mary. She was able to place them aboard the sloop with Calico Jack and the other pirates, in men's clothing with weapons. A part of her testimony that survived says, quote, two women, prisoners at the bar, were then on board the said sloop and wore men's jackets and long trousers and handkerchiefs tied about their heads, and that each of them had a machete and pistol in their hands and cursed and swore at the men, end quote. Dorothy also told the court of how Anne and Mary threatened to kill her if she testified against them, and she initially suspected they might be women due to the largeness of their breasts. The privateers responsible for Anne and Mary's capture 
testified to how viciously they defended the William and how they were the last to stand down. All things considered, it unfortunately seemed like Mary and Anne's case was a fairly open and shut one. All that changed, however, when the judge passed down the verdict. When Anne and Mary were found guilty of piracy and sentenced to hang in Jamaica in November 1720, when Anne would have only been about 21 years old, both women threw the same curveball at the last second to save their own skin. When the judge sentenced the two women to death by hanging, Mary and Anne revealed that they were both pregnant. The judge ordered them back to jail until this was confirmed to be true. In the early 18th century, doctors usually confirmed pregnancy through an in-depth examination of a woman's urine. Doctors developed a practice of assessing the consistency, color, and smell of a woman's urine in order to tell whether or not she was with child. In some cultures, doctors had even fashioned a science to tell what gender the baby was by the smell of a woman's urine. Although we have no real proof, this is likely the system Jamaican doctors used to confirm Anne and Mary's pregnancies after the trial. Once it was confirmed that both women were truly pregnant, the judge ordered a stay of execution for both Mary and Anne. They would wait out the term of their pregnancies together in prison, then hang as promised after they'd both given birth. The two women waited out their stay of execution in adjoining cells. From what little we do know about island prisons in that era, they weren't a hospitable environment for anyone, but especially not for a pregnant woman. Between not getting enough light, not getting enough fresh air, and lack of access to clean water and nourishing food, bringing a pregnancy to term in a Jamaican prison couldn't have been much easier than being pregnant on a pirate sloop. Mary was the first to suffer under these conditions, and she came down with a violent fever in the spring of 1721. Mary was sadly unable to shake her illness, Records show she died sometime in April of 1721. She was buried on April 28th of that year in the Jamaican province of St. Catherine. Anne Bonny would have likely only been about 21 or 22 years old at this time. Losing your best friend is a traumatic experience for any normal person. But for someone like Anne, who'd lost her mother early in life and had few lasting relationships with women ever since, it was undoubtedly a tragic time. Additionally, there are no birth records for Mary's baby, which suggests she very likely died while she was still pregnant. Anne Bonny was now pregnant and alone in a Jamaican prison with only the gallows to look forward to. She had no idea what would become of her child after her death, as both she and the baby's father, likely Calico Jack, would be long gone. Anne had already sacrificed the chance to be a mother when she gave birth in Cuba sometime in 1718 or 1719, only to rejoin Calico Jack several months later with no child in sight. Knowing that the law was forcing her to abandon yet another one of her children must have been extremely difficult for Anne. Despite having detailed records from her piracy trial, History has left us with very little concrete information on what happened to Anne Bonny. 
there's no record of Anne Bonny's death in Jamaica or anywhere else in the British Atlantic in 1721, which leads us to believe she got out of prison somehow. The most common hypothesis is that Anne reached out to her father, a prominent plantation owner with several friendly business relationships in Jamaica and the Bahamas for help. While it might be hard to believe that rebellious Anne Bonny would come crawling back to her father, being a pregnant single mother in prison, staring down the gallows, might have made her priorities shift. Popular legend holds that Anne's father brought her back to South Carolina, where she successfully carried her pregnancy to term. She then settled down and married a man named James Burley, only to have several more children of her own. Some legends say that she and Mary busted out of jail together and fled to Louisiana, continuing their maritime exploits together until the end of their days. But this is highly unlikely, especially since we have death records for Mary in Jamaica. According to the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography, Anne Bonney lived in Charlestown, South Carolina. Until her death, sometime between April 22nd and April 24th of 1782. That means Anne continued to live for another 60 or so years, dying around age 83. While there are no birth records for the child Anne carried in prison during her trial, it's highly possible that she gave birth and raised it in Charlestown with the rest of her family. Meaning that somewhere, Descendants of Calico Jack Rackham and Anne Bonny may still live among us today. Anne Bonny and Mary Reed were icons of the golden age of piracy and also prime examples of early 18th century feminism. Their lifetime spent dressing in men's clothes and doing men's work, like piracy and manual labor at sea, exemplified the ideals that feminism in that era was founded on. They could sail, curse, and fight like the best of the men. Arguably even better. And officially proved the common superstition of the time, that women on the high seas brought bad luck, to be completely false. Some could argue their singular childhoods spent dressing as boys and hiding their true identities prepared them for this life of swashbuckling subterfuge. And some say both Mary and Anne were born hot-blooded at birth. But either way, the two women shattered the gender roles of their era to pieces. They lived by their own rules, but did they die by them too? It's hard to believe that Anne Bonny happily accepted the life of a plantation mistress after being her own boss on the high seas for so many years. But staring down a hangman's noose might make anyone look at their options a little bit differently. Anne Bonny and Mary Reed's time at sea together may have been short, but their legend had staying power that will last for centuries to come. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Female Criminals, you can find them on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify, or on our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. 
It seems simple, but it really helps our show. As always, we thank you for listening. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Female Criminals is written by Lorelai Ignis and stars Claire Delamar and Vanessa Richardson.